This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative entrepreneur. I am David Cadavy from Love Your Work headquarters in Columbia. Yes, the country. I have interviewed titans of industry like Steve Case. I've interviewed best-selling authors like Seth Godin and James Altucher. I've interviewed experts on behavioral science, creators from dancers to a chef to a Hollywood set designer, and visionaries on the cutting edge of creative monetization, whether that's self-publishing or blockchain technology. And from these conversations, I pull out lessons to share with you on how you can find your unique voice as a creative entrepreneur, how you can nail the right mindset to succeed, and how you can be the first to capitalize on new opportunities to make a living making your art. So if you are new here, welcome. Again, I'm David Cadaby. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app and get my free creative productivity toolkit. Sign up at cadaby.net slash tools. Sometimes you're working really hard on something and it's just not happening. In these cases, how do you decide whether to double down or shut down? This is what Nathan Barry was asking himself two years after launching his email service, ConvertKit. He was bringing in only $1,500 a month and he was losing customers every month. So it was time to decide, double down or shut down. Today, ConvertKit, now Seva, brings in much more than $1,500 a month. They recently had their first million dollar month, in fact. Spoiler alert, instead of shutting down, Nathan did in fact double down. And today we're going to analyze how he made that decision. So you're gonna learn, when Nathan decided to double down, he had no idea if his business would succeed. So how did Nathan and his spouse mentally prepare for the worst case scenario? Nathan had to dig into his savings to the tune of $100,000 to double down on ConvertKit. What criteria did he use to know whether or not to quit? And what was the one question Nathan asked himself that ultimately got him to double down? And this is a super valuable conversation. It's incredibly helpful if you've been working on a project that just isn't taking off. I've used this conversation myself to think about this podcast. How do I define success? How should I divvy up my own resources amongst my various projects? You often hear me thanking our Patreon supporters, but this week I want to thank a different kind of supporter. You may have seen on the show notes pages and on the Patreon page that I also support crypto donations. We have a new crypto donor. Kikion has pledged to donate Monero cryptocurrency each month. Now, if you aren't familiar with Monero, it's a very privacy-focused coin. You can't track the activity of one particular address with Monero, for example. I think it's really interesting. I use Monero to buy my VPN service just for that extra added bit of privacy. And I asked Kikion, who calls himself the elusive Monero Good Samaritan, uh, why it was that he would bother paying when he could just listen to the show for free. And he says, all this stuff is free, but I'm under no illusions that it doesn't cost anything to make. And for a good show, there are thousands or even hundreds of thousands of listeners for a small crew or even a solo person creating the content. So if nobody ever donates, the show goes away. Thank you so much, Kikion. I really appreciate your support. Whether you want to donate crypto or if you want to join Patreon and get access to the goodies, you can find details on all of that at patreon.com slash I really appreciate your support, everyone. So thank you so, so much. Here is Nathan Barry. I'm here with Nathan Barry, and Nathan, the last time that we 
had kind of an interview. It was a webinar years years back, and you had a really good publishing business going. You were making a lot of money selling books that you self published, and now you have this extremely successful email marketing company. So, when did ConvertKit now Seva? Where did that all begin? Yeah, well, uh, ConvertKit. All right. Since we just changed the name, I don't know exactly how to like. Do I refer to it the first five years as ConvertKit, and then the next, the next bunch as Seva? Anyway, we'll get into that. Yeah, but, so. um, uh, it all started out of the publishing business. So one thing that I discovered early on when selling eBooks and courses is that email would drive more sales than everything else. And so I was like, okay, like I'm late to the game, but let's figure this email thing out. And I was using MailChimp. And what I learned at the time was that there were all these best practices that you could implement, you know, automated follow-ups, um, tagging your customers, using content upgrades or, you know, something else that's very specific to the, the page that you're on in order to get a higher conversion rate from your subscribers. And I was obsessed with those. And I also found that they were all totally a pain to implement in MailChimp. And so then I started to go down this road of, okay, what would it look like if I built my own email tool and built it for bloggers and online creators like like me? And so that's where it all started. And that was in January 2013. So five and a half years ago. And when you were first approaching it, were you... I mean... It seems quite audacious considering how uh, crowded the email marketing yep. space is, how many companies there are, there are, how huge they all are. It seems quite audacious to even attempt to create an email marketing system. So when you were first doing that, were you thinking like, oh, I'm going to take away market share from these players or were you really just making it for yourself? Well, I definitely wanted to grow a company. The goal was to to have revenue and, and, uh, you know, get to 25, 50,000 a month in, re- in revenue. I didn't think of it in terms of taking away market share, but I, I did, I liked how crowded the space was. Um, cause it wasn't crowded in the sense that it was dominated by someone, you know, even MailChimp as the biggest player doesn't even have a quarter of the market share. Um, so when you looked at revenue-wise, I think at the time Mailchimp was doing two hundred million a year in revenue, two hundred fifty million a year in revenue. Um, there are lots of other players that were doing thirty million, fifty million, or more a year in revenue, and I just saw great. That means that the market hasn't decided on one winner, and so I can carve out my little corner of it, and no one will notice or care. And in the time that um, you know I've grown. Seva over the last five and a half years, it's turned into something really remarkable. Uh, but like at the same time, Mailchimp has gone from a couple hundred million a year in revenue to over five hundred million a year in revenue. And so, I feel like we take customers all the time from Mailchimp, and yet they're still growing like crazy. So the whole industry is growing at an insane rate. And so when you were starting out, you were thinking, well, maybe I can carve out $20,000 a month or so, right? Yep. And, um, and I believe now you're over a million a month. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, a million 70,000. So d- did you find that it wasn't feasible to carve out just, just 20,000 and that you had to, uh, you know, woe is you, uh, grow to uh, a million a month instead? You know, what's interesting is that 
the first zero to 10,000 a month took forever. At least that's how it felt. Um, it took two and a half years to go from zero to 10,000 a month. Um, and then 50% growth on that from 10,000 to 15,000 a month took 30 days. And then from there, you know, that was to like June, we hit 10,000 a month. By July of that year, we were at 15. Um, August, we were at like 18, 19. By September, we were at 25, 28,000 a month. Uh, and then October was up from there, November. And then by December, we were pushing nearly 100,000 a month. And so at that time, the growth just kicked off so quickly that, you know, those twenty-five and fifty thousand dollars a month milestones just blew right on by. Um, and then, yeah, it was how do we reinvest this money to build the best product, and how do we hire the best team, and and then uh, ultimately, how do we serve as many bloggers and creators as possible? So even though the initial goal was small, now it's like, great, let's let's build this to be the best thing we can be. So what was going on? in those first couple years where it took you quite a while to get to that 10,000 a month. I mean, I remember seeing a, a talk that you did at MicroComp where you talked about ConvertKit and it was like, oh, that looks like a neat little tool, but I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm worth, if it's worth switching to, but now you have an extremely sophisticated uh, platform. It's, it's a, at a whole other level. How were things going in those first couple of years and what changed between then and this period of time where you had this uh, extremely high trajectory of growth? Yeah. So the the biggest thing that changed is I took it a lot more seriously. Uh, the the Microsoft crowd is amazing. Um, but one thing that I think they do a lot and that others do in similar communities is they treat a lot of these things as, as side projects. And if you treat it that way, then it's going to stay a side project. You know, in some cases, people get lucky and it hits off in a major way. You know, and then you're like, oh, the side project should be a full-time thing. But other times people say, you know, I'm just working on this. It's a side project. Uh, if it, like, I'll wait for it to tell me that it's time to take this seriously. And that's when these things don't grow. So ConvertKit was at 15,000 or 15,000, sorry. I added an extra zero. Um, almost two years in, ConvertKit was at fifteen hundred a month in revenue, and it was just not really growing because I was giving it half of my time. And so it wasn't until I started giving it, you know, forty, fifty, sixty hours a week and taking it really seriously and and giving it my complete attention that it started to grow. And I think if you're asking people to sign up for your product, especially something as important as email marketing. But whatever the product is, if you're asking people to trust part of their business to it and you're working on it half time, that's a tough sell. Like, why should I take your project seriously if you're not even taking it seriously? And so I think the biggest thing that made a difference is that I shut down my other business and said, nope, I'm going to give this my absolute best effort and see where it goes from there. And your other business being your self-publishing business, I assume. Yeah. And was that what was funding the development of you know, this first couple of years? Yeah, that, that, that is what was funding it. Um, partially funding the development, um, but it was more that it was funding my uh, living expenses and then 
you know, the customer money was was funding development. I put in only five thousand dollars to start ConvertKit, and then it grew from there. Uh, and we used customer money for a long time. And then once I took it seriously, I realized, oh, I'm starving this project by trying to only do it with customer money. Like we're moving way too slowly. We're not building the features that we need. And so then I put in fifty thousand dollars of my own money, hired a team, uh, one person to run customer support, uh, and another person to run you know, all engineering and product. And then, uh, you know, that's when things, we were able to start moving more quickly. I focused on direct sales and marketing. Um, and that's when things started to take off. Now, taking off looked like going from 1500 a month to $1,800 the next month. But that was still significant growth. And so I'm interested to hear about how it was that you decided to persevere through this and to make that commitment because, you know, like you were saying, sometimes people work on a project, and this is certainly something that I'm doing all the time, working on a project, and I'm waiting for some kind of signal or some kind of sign that, okay, this is something that I should commit more resources to. So were you getting any positive signals uh, to, to decide to commit and double down on ConvertKit? No, I don't think that I was, um, which made it probably a scarier choice at the time. The positive signals that I was getting, uh, well, the overall signals were revenue was declining. People were leaving, you know, who had signed up for a few months were not sticking around because it wasn't meeting their needs. Um, the positive signals, if there were any, were that I used the product and liked it and it solved a need for me and that people weren't leaving probably as fast as they should have been based on how little features uh, you know, we had compared to a MailChimp or someone else. So I guess that's the balance of it. But it wasn't like anyone saying, this is amazing, this product is changing my life. Uh, you should go all in on it. It was really like, hey, you want to give this one last shot before we decide that it's a failed experiment and shut it down? Uh, and that's kind of where my head was at. And I decided that I knew that looking back on it, I would have to, I would always wonder if I could have made it work if I shut it down at that point. Like it would be an open question forever. And so I knew I had to give it my best shot, even if it was just for three to five months or, you know, six more months or something like that before I could feel really confident to shut it down and go, yep, I won't regret that. How seriously did you consider shutting it down? Oh, very, very seriously. Um, it was like with my wife, it was a conversation, you know, every day for weeks of, I don't know which way to go on this. Like, uh, is it, is there a market here? Do people want it enough? If people do want it, why aren't they sticking around? You know, if we build these features that we think we should build, is that enough? Um, but it was, I mean, every day for weeks. And so what happened that, uh, what, what changed? The biggest thing is that I knew I would, re would regret it. Basically, I asked myself a couple questions. First, do you still want this as much today as the day that you started? And when I think about that, like for anyone else thinking of, you know, doubling down or shutting down a project. If you don't, if you're not still excited about it and you know, it's not something that you 
really want, then that's okay. Shut it down, move on. Oftentimes we have extreme motivation and excitement when something starts and that dies out over time. Great, that's fine, move on. Um, the second one is really, well, so when asking that question, for me, it was like, yes, I still want this. I want the challenge of building a software company. But then I needed to ask myself a second question. And the second question was, have I given this every possible chance to succeed? And the answer to that was a clear no, right? Working on it part-time, I'd only put a little bit of money into it. Um, I didn't think, think I'd brought on the right team. And so then there's this disconnect, right? I say I really, really want this, but my actions don't show that. And so I knew I had to, at least for some period of time, say six months, I had to reconcile those two things. And I had to make sure that my actions matched what I said I wanted. And then, then I would know. Because if I gave it my best for, you know, another six months, so then at that point, we'd be at like two and a half years, and we didn't have results, then I could feel okay shutting it down because I'd given it my best. It's funny because giving it your best can, I mean, that's a hard thing to define in itself is like, at what point have you given your best? You're homeless on the street uh, or is it, you know, that you've spent your life savings or is it that uh, you've, you've spent uh, two hours every Saturday for six months on something? Like, I feel like giving it your best uh, means something different to different people in different circumstances. Uh, like, what did you envision uh, give, giving it your best? What was the, the scenario in your mind uh, at, where you would actually quit? Like where I would, yeah, where I would say, okay, this product is a failure. Let's shut it down. Yeah, how do you def- how do you define that? Oh, I did give it my best, and 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 I did get the signals that this is not going to work. Yeah. Um. So, I think I decided this in September 2014. So almost, almost two years in. And I said something silly, but in hindsight, it was silly. But it was basically, I'm going to try to get it to 10000 a month in recurring revenue six or seven months. from I'd picked a date. I can't remember exactly. But it was basically like, if I don't hit that, then I'm going to shut it down. And what's funny is I didn't hit that at all. But there was meaningful momentum. So it was like by March. It's going, we're going to be at 10000 a month by March. Otherwise will say that giving it the best didn't work and shut it down. But what's interesting is if you see momentum and you see progress, then that feels like a different thing. And so we did not at all go from the 1500 a month or 1300 a month to 10,000 in that time period. But we went from 1300 a month to 5000. And then when I got to that, I was like, no, this, this is what momentum feels like. And even though I had made this weird you know, artificial rule earlier on, I was like, okay, I'm ignoring that because $5,000 a month is half of what I said I do in this time, time period, but it's, uh, you know, more than triple the revenue we were doing six months ago. And there's momentum, I'm seeing it growing. And so I'm going to stick with it. Um, but if I, I think if six months later, I was still at like $2,000 a month in revenue, um, I would have shut it down. Yeah. 
yeah, it's funny. It's hard to predict what your future self is going to feel like. I, if I think about right. even even this podcast, if I if somebody told me two and a half years ago when I started this podcast that I would be at the level that I'm at right now, I don't know if I would have been up for it. Right. But I still keep doing it because uh, I do get signals and it's mm-hmm. something that I enjoy doing. So I do keep, keep on going ahead and doing it. So that's that's interesting that you changed your arbitrary criteria that you had for deciding when to quit. It's hard to, how can you possibly know ahead of time? Um, but maybe it, maybe it's something that, that helps you, you move forward is to have this idea of, okay, well, at least I have this idea that I'm going to quit. I'm going to give it this, this several months to do it. Right. Was that something that was in your head that um, helped you focus during that period of time when you were uh, deciding to commit to it? Um, well, I made some rules. The first one would be that I wouldn't work on my, uh, ebook publishing business at all. So I, you know, I always say I shut it down. I didn't shut it down. I just ignored it. Um, which in the world of blogging and all that, you'll watch your traffic and your, uh, sales decline pretty quickly. Like for me, I went from averaging 10 to $15,000 a month in ebook sales, um, without a launch to only a few months later averaging 1500 a month maybe. Um, and then it kind of stayed at that low level or maybe 2000 a month. Um, but like that fell off a cliff pretty quickly. Um, so I think to answer your question on the, the focus side, it was really saying, this is probably going to go badly for the other business and I'm going to ignore that and be okay with it. Um, and that's going to free up all of this time to just focus on one thing. So what else had to change about your priorities and your mindset, uh, you know, the thoughts in, in your mind to make this commitment to double down on ConvertKit? Seva. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was quite simply that I just looked at everything through one lens. Do I think this is going to help me grow ConvertKit? No? Great, I'm not doing it. Unless there was another really good reason to do it. Like, you know, it was a favor that my sibling asked me for or something. <laughs> but like within the business context, oh, I have a blog post idea for this. Ah, if it's not going to help move the business forward, then no. I'll make a note of it in a Google Doc and write it at some point later. And how does that contrast with the way that you were thinking about it before? Yeah, it was one of many things that I was doing. So I could bounce around to whatever was interesting at the time. Um, and so wherever my, uh, energy or motivation was, that's where, where I put an effort. Um, so I was much more disciplined about it, um, had much better systems and, you know, and the results show it. So you committed in terms of, um, sort of killing your other projects and then having a singular focus on this one thing, is this going to help me grow ConvertKit? Uh, what about other areas of your life, like your time and your money? Uh, what sort of commitments had to be made there? Yeah, my wife and I definitely stripped down all of our expenses. Um, I'm trying to think where we were at at the time. Like I'm just looking, imagining in my head different houses and uh, where we were living and what was going on. Um, 
but we, you know, yeah, we trimmed down our expenses. We, we ended up drawing down all of our savings pretty much and living off of that, uh, investment accounts and whatever else we'd built up over the past couple of years. Um, over the next eight months of working full time on ConvertKit, we, we spent pretty much all of that. So we went from having, I don't know, healthy savings of savings and investments of hundred thousand dollars, you know, maybe $125,000 to spending through pretty much all of that, a little over 50,000 on the business and the other 50,000 or so on living expenses for the, you know, for that. So you pretty much a year. exhausted your, your retirement fund to, to make the commitment. How did you, what did you tell yourself in order to be comfortable with that? Um, well, I mean, I didn't do it all at once, right? I exhausted the savings and I knew that from the ebook business, if I focused on it, I could rebuild that. It wasn't like something that was gone forever. I knew that through launches and another product, I could get $50,000 back. And then I didn't exhaust the retirement funds until I was really seeing momentum, right? Until we were at like, Hey, I didn't start dipping into that until we're like, oh, we're at four thousand a month, six thousand a month, etc. Um, and so that that felt good, and I was like, okay, if this company works, then I know I can replenish the retirement funds. I if I hadn't seen momentum, I don't know that I would have done it. I would have put in the initial fifty thousand and probably nothing beyond that if we hadn't seen momentum. I think it's interesting that in addition to, you know, you had the, this savings or retirement fund that you were able to invest. And that's something that I've done before myself was say, mm-hmm. you know, here's $40,000 for the next year. I'm just going to give myself my own personal MBA and, and right. do whatever's interesting to me and make that, make that commitment. But it's also interesting that you also had these, these skills and, uh, you had an idea. It was almost like you had money in the bank and that you had these skills that you could use to get more money. It's just it wasn't right. in an account. Obviously, if something horrible had happened, then that would have not been quite so feasible or possible. But fortunately, that didn't happen. And there was you know a, a low chance of that happening. So, so I want to talk a little bit more about these skills that you developed... Well, Really quick, before we go there, another point that I want to make, especially for anyone listening who has a spouse who might at some point try something crazy, like starting a business. Um, The other thing that made a huge difference in this is in conversations with my wife. I said, hey, I want to do this. And, you know, we kind of went back and forth and and we started talking about what's the worst thing that could happen. If all of this fails, what's the worst thing that could happen? And she said, oh, well, we could uh, sell our house that we just bought and remodeled. Um, you know, we could uh, move in with uh, her parents, you know, and all this stuff. And we had two little kids at the time who were two and yeah, two and a half and six months old or something like that. Um, so we list all these things out. It's like, this is everything we could do. And or that was her list. And I thought about it, like, that sounds ridiculous. Like when I actually listed out my list, it was like, I could get a job at a software company, 
right? That was my worst case scenario. And so then when we realized that, that her worst case scenario was so much worse than mine. And she was okay with that. She thought it was worth taking the risk and worth taking this challenge. Then I was like, great, we have to do this because she was so supportive. Um, and then I looked at my worst case scenario of like, look, I have this audience. I have these uh, skills as a designer. Um, I can either get a job or I can sell products in some other way. Like if this company fails, uh, maybe we'll run out of cash on hand, but I have these skills. And so I'll, I'll be able to earn money just fine. We're going to take a quick break. If you want to be great at running your small business, you have to focus. But the pesky details make it hard to focus. If you have to worry about payroll and benefits for your employees, you can't focus. Do you want to spend your time learning the ins and outs of taxes and regulations when you could be running your business? I know I don't. Gusto makes payroll and benefits a breeze. Nine out of 10 users say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll services. 72% of Gusto customers say they finish their payroll in less than five minutes, and they have fewer errors. This must be why PC Mag gave Gusto their Editor's Choice Award. PC Mag said, Gusto is excellent enough that it might make paying your employees an enjoyable experience. Look, you don't have to be a big company anymore to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. Gusto does all of that for you. So to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash love your work. That's gusto.com slash love your work. I love having Earth Class Mail as a sponsor. That is Earth Class Mail. You know, like Earth that you're probably on right now, not First Class Mail, Earth Class Mail. What Earth Class Mail does is it digitizes your physical mail. It puts it online in a secure portal and you can check your mail from anywhere in the world, never be tied to a physical location. That is so cool. You can imagine how much I love that. And you never have to waste time taking another trip to the bank to deposit checks. You know, you get checks from clients and other places that you make money. Earth Class Mail's tech automatically will recognize checks with their check stream service. Earth Class Mail will endorse and deposit checks to your bank account on your business's behalf. You never have to touch it. With Earth Class Mail, you can transform your office into a paperless environment, scan documents, mail, other important items like invoices, receipts. They're all turned into fully searchable PDFs. Earth Class Mail has set up a special offer just for Love Your Work listeners. So listen up if you want to get 8% off the monthly plan or 10% off an annual contract. Visit earthclassmail.com and use the promo code LOVEYOURWORK when you sign up. That's earthclassmail.com with the promo code LOVEYOURWORK. And so I'd like to hear more about these skills that you developed uh, with your publishing business or growing your publishing business. What what skills did you develop doing that? Skills and assets did you develop doing that that have helped you succeed with ConvertKit Seva? Yeah. So I think there's a couple that are really important. Um, first, I've always had a mindset of acquiring new skills and not like, oh, I'm a designer, so I shouldn't bother to learn this other thing. I've always looked at it and said, okay, I want to learn design, development, marketing, writing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to pick up as many new skills as possible. Lately, they've been around learning, uh, leading a company and financials. Um, 
but like all these other things that, you know, I'm still trying to learn how to get better at analytics and all this other stuff. So it's just like first relentlessly acquiring skills. Um, another one that made a really big difference is writing. I had spent the previous two years getting good at writing. And that's, you know, if you're good at not only the craft of writing, but the ability to sit down and actually write. So like the production of writing, putting words in the Google Doc, then you can build an audience if you show up consistently and do that. And so I knew that I could do that. Then another thing is coming from a design background. I had this ability to put things out that looked good. And so I would even take an approach to sales pages or landing pages that the direct, like the direct response copywriting world would have of these longer form pages that went into more detail in selling. But instead of looking terrible because of my background as a designer, they actually really looked really good and they got attention. And so I was able to combine these skills um, into something that was unique and that I could execute on myself. So even... The other day, I wanted to uh, put together a video of frequent last questions about our rebrand to Seva. And so I was like, oh, I need some graphics for that. And so I just fire up Photoshop, make the graphics, toss them into my video. You know, and so even though we have a team of uh, 37 people at this point, um, I have this ability to uh, like still make things on my own. And so I know that I can always fall back on that. It's great that you had these skills to to move you along. And I know that one thing led to another, but if you were to imagine some theoretical world where you started working on an email marketing software as a service company before doing this publishing thing, what would you have lacked? How would that have worked out? Yeah, so if I'd started it earlier, I would have lacked a lot of skills. Um, Jason Fried talks about how making making money, earning money is a skill, like playing the drums, and you can get better at it over time the more you practice. And I'd spent a lot of time practicing it. And I think of a, a software company as being like some really complicated piece that you'd be playing on a musical instrument. Like you wouldn't expect to pick up your guitar and be like, oh yeah, I can play this um, without having practiced a lot. And so all the previous stuff, the design writing, building an audience, growing an email list, programming, coding, video editing, all these other skills that you acquire over time. Um, you know, that's all the practice for it and how to sell these earlier products. Um, so the things that I would have lacked, I, w- I mean, I, I would have even, I would have lacked pretty much everything. Um, even down to even knowing what to build. Like Seva as a product is is so influenced and driven by what I've learned through these other things that if I tried to, you know, go immediately to starting that as a company, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And when you did decide to go ahead and double down on it, I imagine there were there were skills that you had already, but then there's also there's activities involved in scaling a software company, I would imagine that you might not have had any experience with at all. Uh, is that correct? And, you know, did you have any worries about like, oh, am I going to enjoy uh, operating uh, 
in doing these particular activities that are so different from, say, writing or self-publishing or running a smaller software company? Yeah, I think my personality is I enjoy things that are new and when I'm learning. And so I knew that, okay, transitioning from designing and and building software or writing blog posts to actually doing sales. Like that's a big change and I might hate sales. um, But I know that I'm going to enjoy seeing progress and I'm going to learn from it. And so I just always look for Am I learning? Am I growing in that way? And then I'm going to find some enjoyment in it. Doesn't mean that I want to do it forever. Hmm. Um, sales is not like a core part of my job now, though I definitely spend time on it. Um, but it was really important for me to learn how to do it initially. You strike me as somebody that has kind of uh, rock solid discipline. Um, there was somebody we spoke on, we spoke to on the podcast a while ago who was an expert on kind of reducing emotional waste. I feel like I see very little emotional waste in the things that you mm. do. As an example, I remember seeing you speak at my, MicroConf and you presented this idea of writing a thousand words a day. Well, you just write a thousand yep. words a day. And I tried it. I lasted about three days. Now, Come to find out later when I spoke to BJ Fogg, who is a Stanford habits expert, he's all mm-hmm. about, you know, make it 50 words a day. Don't, don't uh, count streaks because they just give you a reason to feel bad about yourself. And I remember you and your presentation talked about stringing together basically two years worth of like 600 some right. days of a thousand word days. And so um, it's, it's funny, like where does that, come from? Is that something that you have cultivated? Is that something that you have always had? Uh, If somebody doesn't have those attributes, is there something that they can learn from you to, uh, to develop those attributes? Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that because it's not the way that I think of myself. And it's because I think of, I know how much time, effort and frustration went into building that streak. And I also know that once I broke that writing streak um, by getting, I got really sick. And that, that was what finally broke the streak. I never got it back. Like even years later, I don't have that same ability to write and produce. Not because it's not possible to get it back. Um, I, I firmly believe that it is. But I think that it's... I don't know if it's that I am not quite willing to put in the effort to get it back or I don't want it quite badly enough yet. And so there's a bunch of things in my life, whether it's working out consistently or writing or um, whatever else that I've tried to build up these streaks with varying levels of success. And so I'm, I absolutely agree with like what BJ uh, says of like, make it, make it a small habit. You know, it's the, okay, I'm going to do 10 push-ups a day. No, I'm not going to go to the gym and do an hour-long workout and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to put it in my little app that I'm going to do 10 push-ups a day and then trust that, you know, in doing 10 push-ups a day, while I'm down there on the floor, maybe I'll do some stretches as well and maybe some squats or something like that. And, you know, and let it let the habit grow from there. So I'm absolutely a fan of that. And when I, when I got the writing habit going, it took me months to build up a streak that I, that I didn't break. Um, so I think it's, maybe it's easier for me than other people, but I think 
I mean, it's definitely so hard and I struggle with it a lot. Um, I mean, I assume that there's a lot of things involved in scaling a software company where you've got to do something that you don't, you don't particularly enjoy, uh, or that if, even if it's not some, for me, it's not even that I don't enjoy it. It's that I don't enjoy starting doing this thing. Uh, is that something that you run into and is, is there anything that you do to help yourself follow through with that sort of stuff? Yeah. The biggest thing that I do is I set a timer. I'm like, I don't want to write this blog post, but you know what? For 20 minutes, I will write this blog post. And then I chip away at it in that way. So like I live by to-do lists and timers. I make a list of things I want to get done for the week and then, you know, move them down the list, cross them off as I finish them. And and I'm like, I don't want to do this, but I'll work on it for 20 minutes. Um, I just use the timer in Google. So I just type into Google, set a timer for 20 minutes. Or 25 minutes. That's what I do. Uh, and that's been really helpful because I, it, maybe this is a unique ability that I have. I don't think it's that unique to me. Um, but I can force myself to do something for 20 or 25 minutes. And I may not get it done in that time, but I'll certainly make progress on it. Yeah. What do you think are some of the biggest changes that? you've made to yourself personally in going through this challenge of scaling up ConvertKit? Like, how are you different now uh, thanks to this challenge? Oh, that'd be an interesting question to ask my team. That makes me want to go to like Barrett, who's our COO. And, you know, he and I have been good friends for six years or more. And he's, he's worked at Seven for two, yeah, for two years now. Um, That'd be interesting. Now I want to ask him that. Uh, but what comes to mind for me is how I'm different is I try to solve fewer problems. Um, and this is recent. This is in the last six months, maybe or a year. Someone explained it to me that as entrepreneurs, we're, we get to where we are. And they were talking to a, a room full of CEOs. Um, basically saying, we get to where we are by being really good problem solvers. And in particular, really good at pattern matching. And so when someone brings this problem, we pattern match to a problem that we've encountered before and then give them uh, what we think is they is the solution. Now, really, it's a solution. And we do that and they say, oh, thank you for the solution. And they go away and they go implement it. And then down the road, we hear that, you know, they really don't feel like they have a voice at the company. They don't feel heard or understood or other things. You're like, what do you what do you mean? You asked for a solution, I gave you one. And so what I've tried to do a lot more of is just listen and ask questions. And I think that's what's started to change who I am as a leader. And it's a long process and there's a long ways to go. But I've been trying to just, when someone brings a problem to me, say at first, questions like, oh, that makes sense. What else? Like, or tell me more about that. And then when they're saying, what do you think we should do? Then you start by asking, you know, I'm not sure. What do you think you, we should do? Do you have a solution for this already? Do you have something, a direction you'd already like to go? And then when they propose that, instead of going, ha, no, 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 that's a terrible idea. We tried that two years ago. It, it would never work. Um, but instead saying, you know, asking some questions, draw out more thoughts on it, make sure it's well thought through. Um, and that's totally changed my approach to time and leadership of, of so many more people on my team are getting better equipped to 
solve these problems themselves without ever looping me into it. And that's something that I really like because we've got 37 people on the team and I don't need to solve everyone's problems for everyone, even though it makes me feel good for someone to bring a problem of it to be like, ah, yes, I know this. Here's the solution. Go. So I think that's the biggest thing that's changed over time. Have you ever read Turn the Ship Around by David Marquet? I have uh, not. The Submarine Captain? Okay. It's a book that... Uh, he's been on the show and and Jason Freed actually recommended the book on the first episode of this show. And nice. it's a submarine captain that took a submarine from the, the worst ship in the Navy to the best ship in the Navy by doing a lot of kind of what you're talking about of people yeah. come come to him wanting him to solve a problem and he just helps them think it through themselves instead. Right. I'll have to go read the book. It sounds exactly what I'm thinking of and spending all my time on lately. It sounds it sounds like you don't need to read the book, but <laughs> you might do it anyway. I can always I can always learn more. Now now that you've changed the name from ConvertKit to Seva, I feel like you've really defined your market really, really mm-hmm. well. And I think that's one of the things that has helped you grow. I know from listening to other conversations with you. Was that something that you could see clearly when you were first building ConvertKit, the, you know, your target market? Or was that something that became more clear later on? It became more clear later on. Um, initially, it was super broad email marketing for people who need email marketing, email marketing for people like me. Uh, it, then we narrowed way down to email marketing for authors um, that had some issues, uh, but narrowing down was the right idea. So then a few months later, we changed it to email marketing for professional bloggers. And we stuck with that for a few years before finally settling on email marketing for creators. And it's just a more aspirational term and, and more all-encompassing. You know, so it includes... Well, our customer base ranges right now from authors like Tim Ferriss and Gretchen Rubin all the way through to musicians uh, like Tim McGraw. And uh, then we've got podcasters like Pat Flynn. And, and we just have this amazing group of creators that want to have a direct connection with their audience. And so that's why we made the change to email marketing for creators. And, and that's who we want to serve. But it, it took a few iterations to get there. Well, and it also seems like the market itself changed. I think this idea of creators wasn't quite so... Um, it, it wasn't quite so prevalent, uh, mm-hmm. you know, years ago. I could, yeah. I could be mistaken. I partially agree with that. But there were companies like Squarespace and Gumroad Mm, that Squarespace maybe didn't name it so explicitly. Um, But you could see it through all of their marketing. You just go to the homepage and it's just like, go, you know, sliding through all these different examples of creators using Squarespace. Um, But Gumroad used it very explicitly in their marketing. Um, And, uh, you know, hopefully that company um, rebounds and comes back because they have a great software. But... um, that they've been an inspiration for a long time in their use of creators and it's or in their target of creators. And so I think that's something that, you know, we want to build upon that we want to build on. What was that process like for you defining that market? Uh, what were your fault starts? It sounds like uh, 
authors were a dead end. Why was that? And and what other things did you try? What other dead ends did you have to arrive at the market that you've defined now, the customer you've defined now? Yeah, authors was the big dead end. Um, basically, the reason that it didn't work. Well, first, a lot worked about it. We were having really a hard time getting anyone to promote us, understand what we do. No one understood why we were different than MailChimp or if we were different or whatever else. Um, and, uh, and, and no one would promote us because they didn't, they just didn't get it. And so when we made the switch to email marketing for authors, I was immediately able to get meetings that I couldn't get before. Um, and I could ask friends for referrals. So they're like, Oh, I think I understand. I mean, I understand what this does yet, but at least I understand who it's for. And so I, I just remember an example of being able to get, uh, two webinars. Because with author communities, because I could say, look, I built an email marketing tool exactly for your audience. And they're like, oh, great. Will you come teach a webinar on how to do this? And so that, man, finding that niche worked so, so well. But then what happened is we ran into a different problem in that we could attract a lot of authors, but they weren't sticking around. The turns out the people who most commonly identified with that term that we were finding. Um, and running into were the ones who were like, someday I'd love to write a book and publish it for 99 cents on the Kindle store. But writing is hard, so I'm not going to get it done. <laughs> you know. And so we ended up finding that we were attracting the wrong people that we couldn't build a business on. And so that's why we uh, made the switch to uh, email marketing for professional bloggers, knowing that then we could attract a more established business and the beginners would find the word professional aspirational and say, well, I'm taking this seriously. So I want to use the tools that the pros are using. And conveniently, it also overlaps with a lot of authors. Oh, totally. But what was interesting is it made it easier to get to the authors for some reason. I think we could have made authors work. Um, so I don't want to write that off entirely, but it was we were having a hard time getting to the level of author that we wanted to. And talk to us about the switch to the name Seva. I got so attached to the name ConvertKit mm-hmm. that then I uh, found out that you're changing the, the name to, to Seva. And, you know, my initial reaction is like, what? Come on, yep. I like I like ConvertKit. Which I'm sure you're probably getting a lot of. <laughs> But uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the name change started all the way back um, a little over two years ago, maybe even longer ago than that, maybe three years ago that I started thinking about it when we got initial feedback from people who weren't out there to convert their audience. There were a few of these big blogs where that we got on as early customers where they're like, look, I'm here to serve my audience. I'm here to... Uh, educate them and improve their lives and provide them great content. And when I have Powered by ConvertKit on my site, it makes it seem like I'm trying to put them through a sales funnel and I'm trying to sell them things. Mm. When, yes, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to earn a living, but my core goal is not to earn the most money possible. It's to have the most impact. And so I love what you guys do and I love what you stand for, but please don't make sure that ConvertKit does not show up to my subscribers in any way. Okay, thanks. You know, so we'd have interactions like that. 
with people. And other people would say, oh, I love the name ConvertKit. It totally makes sense to me. Um, and so we'd have it on both sides. But I really resonated with the people who said, you know what? It doesn't match my mission. And so over time, as we refined our mission, it went from being very inwardly focused of how do we just build a company to being much more outward focused. And um, so now our mission is that we exist to help creators earn a living. And ConvertKit just found, it sounded so techy and it sounded like a small piece of software, like a WordPress plugin or a script or something like that that you just put on your site. And then, then we're over here trying to create a global movement around creators being able to make earn a living from a direct connection with their audience that it seemed very limiting. And we started doing these other projects. Like we started a conference called Craft and Commerce. And then we, uh, and like, it's not a small conference. It's a big deal. Like we had Seth Godin keynote last year and Casey Neistat keynote this year. Um, and then we went and filmed the documentary on how all of our customers are living. And we produced it into a coffee table book as well. And we're doing all these things to inspire, to educate our current generation of creators and to inspire the next generation of creators. Um, and the name, like ConvertKit, really started to not fit. And then we started adding this whole other element into it of, okay, but what if you don't have the opportunities that you and I do as a creator? And so we started putting our money into projects like uh, building houses with New Story Charity in Haiti and El Salvador, and then working with Charity Water to Joel Wells. And then we worked with this group called Earth Mission Asia to um, buy land to build a hospital uh, in the jungle in Burma. And we're just doing all these things and we're like, but ConvertKit, that's our name, you know? And so then we started the search. Um, we're going, you know, renaming the company. And when we came across Seva as a name, it was just so perfect because it summed up so much of what we believe, not just how we do business, but who we want to do business with. Because Seva is a Sanskrit word that means selfless service. And so when we think of that, like I think of people like, um, you know, Pat Flynn or someone who pours everything they have into producing amazing content and really serving their audience. I mean, he even has uh, t-shirts that say serve first. Um, or like there's a school teacher that uh, has been a customer of ours for a long time. He's in our documentary. Uh, his name is Dave Stewart. And he works with teachers to help them be better teachers. And one of my favorite things about him is that even though he earns more from his blog than he ever did as a teacher, he's still a teacher. Like he still goes to the classroom each uh, each week um, because that's so important to him, and he, you know, knows the impact that he has. And so, when we finally found this name, we're like, okay, here we go. We're going all in on it. And uh, obviously, people have complained or had issues with it, but we've had far more support people saying like, wow, I, I feel like you finally found a name that matches who you are as a company. It's funny that you mentioned the idea of you know, convert and that being unappealing to some people mm -hmm. because now thinking back, like when I first heard the name ConvertKit, I think I had a similar reaction, but now I've been exposed to it for so long over time right. and the alliteration <laughs> of it that yep. I like forgot what the words even are. Uh, but that's also interesting that the perception of the audience is, is an important component of it as well, that they don't want to see convert kit on, on a site of somebody that is 
supposedly being generous to them. Right. Yeah. And if it can better establish the kinds of people we work with, that's, uh, that's even better. Because people who say, you know, yeah, but I am just in it to make money um, <laughs> and get, uh, you know, buy an email list and sell them mediocre products and see how much I can make before doing it all over again. Um, you know, and then it's like, great, go use a different email provider. One of my favorite comments is, sounds like I really like to convert kid as a name. Uh, Seva just doesn't make any sense to me. I think only creators will get it. <laughs> I was like, good. That's okay. <laughs> I am totally, if that statement is true, I am entirely fine with that. Oh, that's, that's great. I think that you, you've really worn me up to it. And, and now it makes so much <laughs> more sense to me. So thank you for explaining that. So, uh, yeah. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I recommend Seva to people all the time. I have an affiliate link, cadavy.net slash Seva or cadavy.net slash ConvertKit, whichever you choose. Uh, yeah. is, there, is there anywhere else that you'd like for people to, to get more of you and what you're doing? You know, if people want to read the whole backstory of the company, uh, one thing that we did all the way along is just write blog posts. Um, so if you want to read that, it's at nathanberry.com. If you just go back in the archives, you'll see a post of me celebrating $5,000 a month or you know, hundred thousand, like each milestone. And I find it entertaining because it's like a little snapshot of my mindset and what I thought was possible at the time. Um, so I still <laughs> reread those posts from time to time. Um, but yeah, just I check that out and then follow me on Twitter at Nathan Berry. And those would be the places. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Nathan. All right. Thank you. Is Love Your Work helping you find the intersection on your love and money Venn diagram? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation to make you into the person that you want to be? If so, we, together, you and I, can make this the show that we want it to be. I'm trying to make a nourishing and thoughtful show, and I could use your help with that. Please donate to the show. Just a coffee a month will help support the hosting and production of this show. Just a coffee a month will help spread Love Your Work's message, helping more people live a balanced life with a healthy definition of success. To donate, visit our Patreon page at cadavy.net slash donate. Patreon is a platform that lets you support creators like me. Vote with your dollars and keep Love Your Work going at cadavy.net slash donate. As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at cadavy.net slash donate. That's cadavy.net slash donate. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini sponsor Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist at agilityalchemist.com and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pankovicius. This has been Love Your Work and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>